God, we do adore you. We praise your name. We worship you. And not merely for all of the things that you have done to redeem us and show your love for us, but also because of who you are. We thank you that you are holy and you call us into holiness. We thank you that you are merciful and you call us to be merciful. Um, Father, we worship you for just the very nature of your being, that you are the God from whom being itself proceeds. And we thank you that you've seen fit to make us and to call us your own and to reveal yourself to us through your word and through your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we, as we spend this time together this morning, our hearts would be turned to you in praise and adoration and that you would bless us through this time. In Christ's name, amen. So I would love for you to open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 31. And we have been following the story of the Jewish patriarchs as we've been going through the book of Genesis together. We've been following particularly the life of Jacob for the last couple of weeks as he's been living in his father-in-law Laban's house. Um, In the story, it's been something like 20 years, maybe closer to 25 years And we have looked last week at the fact that this has not been a good situation. It's not been a good arrangement for Laban or for Jacob to be living in Laban's household. So today we're going to finally see this conflict between Laban and Jacob, his son-in-law, reach the point where it escalates and Jacob feels the need that it's time for him to take his family out of the household of Laban and return to his homeland in Canaan. So pick up with me in chapter 31. We're going to read verses 1 through 21. It says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. And so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted, And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. And he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. 
So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Peden Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. All right, so verse 1 here shows us a rise in the conflict, again, between these two men. It indicates that the tension between Jacob and Laban is reaching a crisis point. And actually, it reminds me a little bit of back in chapter 27, uh, where Jacob had this conflict with his brother Esau. Maybe you remember that. Where Jacob was no longer safe in his own household, the house that he grew up in. That's what ultimately brought him to the land where he's now living with Laban. But here we're told that Laban's sons have begun to loathe Jacob for his financial success. And we can imagine where grumbling like that might lead, can't we? Grumbling like this maybe begins small, but it grows into jealousy and complaining. And if it continues to grow and fester, then it eventually might manifest in something like outright theft and violence. And unfortunately for Jacob, he's a guy who kind of tends to make enemies wherever he goes, and he's once again in danger for his life. But although his name, Jacob, means something like he cheats or he grasps, the fact of the matter is that Jacob has not become wildly blessed because of his own cheating. He has become abundantly blessed because God has chosen to bless him. That's what we've been looking at week after week here. Jacob is blessed above all those around him because God has poured out blessing upon this man. Laban's sons think that Jacob is wealthy and successful because he has defrauded them. But the truth is that Jacob has become wealthy because God has poured his blessing upon him. And if you think about it then, Jacob is hated precisely because God has blessed him. And I think this is kind of an unfortunate truth about the Christian life that we see here. The blessing of God upon the people of God will always enrage those who oppose God. Let me say that again. The blessing of God upon the people of God will always enrage those who hate God. And the mere blessing of obedience to Jesus, it incurs the wrath of the world, doesn't it? The world scorns us because we choose to walk in obedience to Jesus. We choose the blessing of obedience and therefore the world hates us. And Jesus taught his followers that anybody who would come after him would suffer the same hatred from the world that he himself suffered. And this is because the world despises us because we claim a treasure in Christ that the world can never have, that the world can never offer. Now, the blessing that we have in Christ, it doesn't look exactly the same way Jacob's blessing looked. That's true. It's not sheep. 
It's not goats. It's not financial material wealth. Rather, it is the blessing of righteousness itself. It's a blessing of righteousness that as we walk in righteousness exposes the wickedness of the world. That's actually a blessing, but that's going to incur the hatred of the world. But it's more than that too. It's also the blessing of knowing the truth. It's the blessing of knowing goodness. It's the blessing of peace that we have in our Savior, the the blessing of security that our eternal lives are found in Him. It's the blessings of joy, the blessing of receiving and also being able to give forgiveness, the blessing of acceptance by God. The blessing that we have in Christ is the ability to say, that we love our enemies rather than hate our enemies. It's the blessing to serve selflessly, like Tim was talking about, rather than have to grab and take and operate in selfishness. And it's the blessing of eternal meaning for our lives rather than going through life haunted by a sense of vanity. And again, the joy and the security that we radiate to the world because we are secure in the arms of Christ, that is always going to enrage a world that is filled with jealousy, that thinks that we should ha- they should have what we have. Much in the same way that Laban's sons end up hating Jacob for what he has that they don't have. But I think there's something else to see in the outrage of Laban and his sons, these men who tried to cheat Jacob. And remember, even Laban's sons were involved in this scam. If you remember last week, Laban agrees with Jacob to the terms of this contractual agreement, the wages that Jacob is going to get. And uh, the agreement is that Jacob will get the abnormally colored animals. And Laban's like, I love the idea. And then he sneaks away all of the abnormally colored animals before the contract starts. And what does he do with them? He gives them to his sons who were involved in this cheating, but their cheating failed. And now they're angry because they think they got cheated. And so here's another principle for life that you can live by. Those who engage in sin and evil firmly believe that their sin and evil is justifiable even as they hate sin and evil in other people. Laban and his sons believe that Jacob has gotten ahead by cheating them, even as they were seeking to get rich by cheating Jacob. And now they're angry. They're incensed that their dishonest efforts to manipulate the situation so that it would benefit them failed while Jacob succeeded. And so I would encourage you to look deeply in the mirror for just a moment at this point. Because I think we're often guilty of this behavior in our own lives, aren't we? How much do you hate to see pride in other people? And yet, are you guilty of being proud? How much do you hate to be lied and deceived by other people? And yet, do you ever deceive other people? How much do you hate to hear a story that was gossiped about you come back to you and it was told to somebody else and you're angry that somebody would say something like that and yet 
you've sat around a table with friends and joked and laughed and gossiped about somebody else. Maybe I've not identified your particular issue, but you could see where this goes, right? We, we despise to find sin manifesting in other people when it affects us. And yet we are quite justified when we engage in sin, quite willing to excuse it when it comes out of us. Friends, why do we feel such righteous indignation at the sins of other people even while we go about making excuses for our own sin? Why do we despise even the world that hates God for its unrighteousness even while we harbor secret alcoves of unrighteousness in our own heart that we essentially say to God, you can have all of me, but you cannot have this, God? Why do we feel anger when other people sin against us, but we don't weep with sorrow? We don't feel despair when we come before God And we plead with him to cleanse us of the remaining sin that we are still guilty of. May God have mercy on us to make us the kind of people that are most outraged at the sin that continues to lurk in us. That we might be most righteously committed to hating the sin that we do, not the sin that is done against us. And let us not be like Laban and his sons who are angry because they were cheated, even as they were trying very hard to get ahead by cheating. Now, as for Jacob, it's clear that he and his family are now in danger because this situation has escalated. The jealousy of Laban and his sons has grown to the point where things are going to get intense if he doesn't get away. And so God commands him, return to the land of your father. Return to the land of Canaan. And in verses 4 through 16, we learn a couple of things. For starters, we learn that there's been some passage of time between the end of chapter 30 and what we're reading now in the beginning of chapter 31. And we know this because in verse 7, Jacob says that Laban has changed his wages 10 times. So the original contract, again back in chapter 30, was that Laban would keep all the animals that were born with normal coloring And Jacob would keep all of the animals that were born with an abnormal coloring. But as we saw back at the end of chapter 30, what ended up happening was that the flocks always produced herds or offspring that favored the wages of Jacob. And so Laban perceives this happening, and so he comes to Jacob and he goes, hey, I want to change the terms of our agreement here. I I think actually it would be more fair if you kept the ones that are normal coloring, and I'll keep the abnormal colored ones, right? Because he knows that's where the most profit is to be made. And Jacob says to his wives in these verses that Laban did something like this ten times. Again, attempting to manipulate the situation so that it benefits him. And in verse 11, Jacob then tells us, as he's speaking to his wives, about a dream that he had where an angel, the angel of God, came and explained to him what was going on. Behind the scenes in the spiritual realm, where neither Jacob nor Laban had the ability to peer, God was at work to frustrate Laban's cheating and to bless Jacob. And so no matter how many times Laban attempted 
to manipulate the situation to his benefit, God responded by causing the flocks to produce animals that would belong to Jacob and not Laban. Now, for a selfish cheater like Laban, this would obviously, I think, produce in him the kind of anger and frustration that might eventually manifest in hostility towards Jacob, maybe even physical hostility. But Jacob then says in verse 7 that God restrained Laban so that Laban was able to commit no harm against Jacob or his family. And this is part of God's blessing upon this man, protecting him from harm in order that the promise that God made to Abraham might come to pass in his grandson Jacob. We saw that same protection over the life of Abraham. Remember, God safeguarded that man as he traveled to Egypt and made him victorious over other kings so that God could deliver on this covenant promise that he made to Abraham. Well, throughout Genesis, I've been essentially teaching that if we are children of God through faith in Christ, that we have inherited Abraham's blessing through Christ. And if that's true, then can we expect the same kind of provision from God in our lives that no harm would come to us? Is that a fair application to take from this point that we as children of God through faith in Christ are also inheritors of Abraham's blessing? Is it true for us, as it was true for Jacob and Abraham before him, that God will not permit us to be harmed for the sake of his own promises? Well, the answer to that question, I think, is both yes and no. So let me unpack it a little bit. In a physical sense, we as Christians have no guarantee in Scripture that we will not suffer harm or even death at the hands of those who hate us. Quite the contrary. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, we're told that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Hebrews 11, maybe you know this chapter, it speaks of the servants of God who are commended by God, people who suffered mocking and flogging, chains and imprisonment. It says that some were stoned to death. Others were literally sawn in half for their faith. They were killed with the sword. There were many who went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And God allowed those beloved children of his, to suffer all of these things. And therefore, we as Christians should embrace the fact that it is more than possible that we too could suffer something like that. But it's also true that even if we were to suffer these kinds of things on, or from the hands of the world, God would not permit the world to harm us in any meaningful way. God will not permit the world to harm his people in any meaningful way. And we know this because Jesus promised it 
in chapter 10 of John, verses 27 through 29. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And so, although suffering and death are essentially promised to us as Christians, I mean, suffering is essentially promised and death is eventually inevitable, we hold fast to the truth that in an ultimate sense, God will not permit harm to come to us because we are safe and secure in the hands of Christ who keeps us. Praise God for that in the midst of a crazy world that is often out of control and changing very swiftly. Now, this idea also ties back to our text from Genesis 31 in a little bit of a different way. So in verses 4 through 16, we find out that Jacob has finally come to understand that the reason that he is blessed is because God has been blessing him. All of his wealth, all of his riches, all of his success has come to him because God has given it to him. Just like Laban couldn't harm Jacob because God was preventing Laban from harming Jacob. And Laban couldn't steal Jacob's blessing because Jacob didn't earn it. The blessing was given to Jacob by God. It wasn't something Jacob did that Laban could thieve from him. It came as a kindness from Yahweh. So I wonder this. I wonder if we as Christians have truly learned to embrace this principle for the Christian life. Do we really believe that blessing comes from God? Now, you might hear me ask that question and be like, yeah, of course I believe that. I mean, that's why I'm at church on Sunday. But think about this. If we really believed that blessing comes from God and not from some other source, if we were really convinced of that, wouldn't we be more eager to seek the face of God rather than seek other lesser things? I mean, if we really believed that blessing came from God and not from some other source, wouldn't we be more hungry to meet with God in his word where he reveals himself to us? If we really believe that blessing came from God, wouldn't we be more eager to walk in obedience to the things that God has said will lead to blessing? If we really believe that blessing came from God, wouldn't we be less stressed out about politics and gas prices and market movements and 401ks? If we really believed that blessing came from God, wouldn't all of these things find their proper place in life? If we really believe that blessing came from God, wouldn't we be more prone to kind of just dance our way through life? Very laid back, enjoying the ride, regardless of the chaos around us, because we're confident in the love that this God has for us, in the provision that he will make for us, in the protection that he will give to us. I mean, how long will we as Christians chase after the gifts that God gives while we neglect 
the much greater giver of those gifts in His greatness. And I want to be gentle here because I think that this kind of trust can take a lifetime to cultivate slowly over time. It's taken Jacob, I think, many long decades to cultivate this kind of trust in Yahweh. But I do truly long for each of us as Christians to believe Jesus when he said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Even if Jacob were to suffer at the hands of Laban and his sons, he would still have the blessing of God. And that would be enough. We know that for sure. And I want to remind you here that the reason that we're blessed as Christians, it's not because of who we are. It is because of who God is. And we need to be reminded of this a lot, I think. The angel of God appears to Jacob, and in verse 13, the angel of God says, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and you made a vow to me. But if you remember that scene from a couple chapters back, back in chapter 28, something happened before Jacob made a vow. Do you remember what it was? Before Jacob made a vow, God made a vow to Jacob. God made a promise to this man. And long before God made a promise to Jacob, God made a promise to another man, Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. And it's that promise from which Jacob is now benefiting. Now, Jacob's vow is certainly important. I don't want to diminish that. That's why the angel reminds him of it. Jacob did enter into a promise before God. But Jacob's vow before Yahweh, that's not why Jacob is blessed. Jacob is blessed because God chose him to be the object of favor. And so as much as we need to trust and believe that our blessing comes from God, we also need to be reminded, we need to remember that that blessing comes to us not because of our faithfulness. Thank God. Rather, that blessing comes to us because of God's faithfulness. God has been faithful to Jacob. And God remains faithful to his people. And so the equation does not sound like this. We are faithful and therefore God blesses us. No, the equation sounds like this. God is faithful and therefore God blesses his people. Now God does remind Jacob of his vow. But Jacob gave that vow only in response to the promise that God made to him. And so we're reminded that our duty as Christians is to entrust ourselves to the God who has vowed to achieve our good through Christ Jesus. We trust ourselves into his hands because of that promise. This is the God who blesses us and keeps us from harm. The God who goes with us. The God who takes care of us. The God who said he will never leave us or forsake us. The God who is ensuring our safety through the resurrection. God who is guarding us in his love, who says that nothing can separate us from his love. God who goes before us, beside us, behind us. And therefore, just like Jacob, the God who will surely bring us safely home. Even though that path as we journey there might be fraught with trials, 
persecution, suffering, heartache, difficulty. And I love the response of Rachel and Leah to Jacob's testimony in verse 16. These women, I think, show great faith in their willingness to abandon the land of their father, their homeland, and to entrust themselves to the God who has blessed Jacob. In verse 16, they say, Whatever God has said to you, do. These are women who have come to recognize that there's nothing left for them in this land that is the place of their origin. And so they will set their hearts upon the land to which God is now leading them. And I think this is how the bride of Christ should respond to God's promises as well. This is how the church should respond to the call of Christ as Christ says, come with me, follow me, I will lead you home. We must be willing to forsake this world, this place that is our natural origin. We must be willing to forsake all that it promises. We must be willing to cut ourselves off from its entanglements that we might go with Jesus to this land, the land of our inheritance. We must seek the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. We must set our mind on things above, not on things that are on earth, not on the things that tempt us from day to day. We must echo the faith of these women and declare, whatever God has said, we will do. Now, in the last few verses of this text, we see Laban fall prey to the same kind of trickery that has defined his own life. Jacob manages to kind of sneak away with his family, and we're going to see how that plays out next week. And then before leaving, Rachel steals Laban's household gods. On a side note, it kind of makes me wonder if she were to plunder your house of your household gods, what might she steal? But we find that Laban the trickster gets tricked. And it makes me think of the words of Jesus when he said that if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. With the measure you use, it will be measured against you. There's a sense in which Laban is getting what he deserves. Now, it's true that in this life, many people in this fallen world don't receive the justice they deserve in this life. Psalms deals with this when it says, why do the wicked prosper, O God? And that is the tragic nature of a world twisted and bent by sin that many evil people get away with their sin in this life. But in general, it is true that you reap what you sow. And if that doesn't turn out to be true in this lifetime, then it will certainly be true in the final judgment where God says that he will repay every man for his deeds. And so, in light of that reality, may we be the kind of people who in our lives sow righteousness and mercy and truth and goodness, that before the throne of Christ we might reap righteousness and mercy and truth and goodness. Unlike Laban, who sows selfishness and deceit, and then gets outwitted by God in the end. He's not outwitted by Jacob. He's outwitted by God. But what about this little verse, verse 19? 
I alluded to it where Rachel steals the household gods. I find that verse hilarious. Um, If you read closely as you make your way through the Old Testament, you find from time to time there are more than a few scenes where the Bible mocks idols. The Bible mocks the false gods that we tend to give ourselves over to. I think this is one of those verses. Someone tell me, what kind of God can be stolen from its place and snuck away? You know what kind of God, an impotent, tiny, foolish, insignificant God. That's the kind of God that can be stolen. A God that is useless and puny and powerless. Gods like money are quickly stolen. Gods like beauty quickly fade. Gods like fame, pleasure, are easily taken. Those are the tiny, impotent gods that can be stolen from you if you keep them. And the truth is that Laban should know better about his household gods after seeing Yahweh bless Jacob. Remember what Laban even said last week? I used divination to find out that you're blessed or that I'm blessed because of you and you're blessed because of Yahweh. Remember that? And the truth is Laban should know better. He should have tossed out these household gods for the greater God that is Yahweh. But here's the thing. Laban does not want to bow before God. Laban wants gods that will bow before him. And the kinds of gods that will easily bow to you are the same gods that will easily abandon you. If you expect your idols to bow, then be prepared for them to also be stolen. Now, these last couple of verses, I think, are a foreshadowing for the family of Jacob. And if you think about it, this is a kind of exodus. Maybe you know what's going to come in the story. But in this scene, Jacob flees from the place where he's been essentially in captivity. He's been like a slave. He has worked and he has received almost no wages for his work. And so he flees with his children who are destined to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he crosses a body of water, the Euphrates, just like his descendants will one day do when they cross the Red Sea as they leave slavery in Egypt. And in his exodus, Jacob plunders the house of Laban for whom he has worked all those years without payment. Just like the nation Israel will plunder the nation of Egypt when they leave, taking with them riches and silver and gold from the household of the Egyptians for whom they worked with no payment. All of that happening roughly 500 years later. So Jacob is foreshadowing the exodus of Israel. And the Bible tells us that the exodus of Israel is an illustration for us. It's like us leaving sin. And so in a sense, there's a way in which this scene from Jacob's life is a foreshadowing for us. As Christians, we ourselves are in the process of a great exodus. 
Christ, our Redeemer, has come to set us free from slavery to sin in order that he might bring us safely into the land in which he has promised us, which he has prepared for those who trust him. And it is true that while we live in this strange land, away from our true home, which is heaven where God is, we will often be cheated by those around us. And maybe from time to time, our lives will be in danger. But our God is with us in much the same way that God was with Jacob. He's with us to bless us, to safeguard us, to bring us safely home. And so the exodus that we are part of is an escape from sin into the glory of righteousness. That's the journey that you and I are on currently. And praise God for that.